Welcome to Resilient Communities, a podcast of the RAND Corporation that offers insights in the strengthening community's capacity to withstand and recover from disasters. In today's podcast, Admiral Thad Allen will discuss the critical questions confronting the field of community resilience, including where we should focus our research and analysis. He will also discuss a new toolkit developed by RAND researchers to support community disaster planning with particular attention to the often overlooked needs of children. Admiral Allen was the 23rd Commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard from 2006 to 2010. In 2001, he commanded the U.S. Coast Guard's Atlantic Forces in their response to the terrorist attacks on September 11th. While serving as the Coast Guard's Chief of Staff in 2005, he was the principal federal official overseeing the response to Hurricane Katrina and the recovery efforts in the Gulf Coast region. Admiral Allen, why do you think the community resilience agenda is so resonant now? I think there are a few more important issues we're dealing with today in terms of preparedness around the country than uh, what we would call community resilience in the RAND community. Uh, The reason it is so important is that uh, after an event, uh, the local community, first of all, needs to be compliant with what they need to do to reduce the impacts of the event, but they need to participate in the response and the recovery, and more resilient communities are more capable of doing that. I could just provide a couple of thoughts that uh, kind of stem from my experience in the hurricane response to Katrina and the oil spill itself. Uh, I talk a lot about uh, what happened before these events and what happens after these events. And the fact of the matter is the event doesn't create the preconditions. And to the extent that preconditions exist that lower the ability of the community uh, to be able to react and respond, uh, be compliant with directions that are given, and then participate in the uh, response and the recovery, uh, the entire value of the community is diminished. So I think a focus on how you can build resilient communities is very, very important. And when I talk about resilient communities, I'm, I'm really talking about all facets of life. Uh, I'm not just talking about uh, do you not have enough water and medicine and uh, supplies to last you 72 hours after an event. I'm talking about the basic fundamental building blocks of a civil society uh, that, in my view, uh, create uh, the same a strength in a community that an immune system does in a body. And I think uh, communities that are not resilient uh, suffer in the same way that somebody who gets sick and has a low immune system. And resilient communities ought to be the goal, I think, of everybody, where no matter where you live. This is not restricted to highly concentrated population areas around the Gulf. Uh, we saw that in the tremendous uh, death and destruction wrought by the tornadoes in the spring of, uh, of 2011, uh, tsunamis and other natural disasters. And so in my view... Uh, The notion of talking about resiliency includes the entire cycle of the status, the uh, attributes of the community prior to an event, their ability to withstand the shock of an event, uh, be compliant in the directions that are given for the public in that event, to participate in the response and long-term recovery until the community establishes a new status, a new normal, or whatever you want to call it. The ability to go through that entire cycle, in my view, is the definition of resiliency. What are the three to five things we should be doing or thinking about as a nation with respect to strengthening community resilience? I think when we uh, look at how we can strengthen uh, community resiliency, I think there are a number of things that we can do, and a lot of these don't involve huge amounts of resources or investment. And that's particularly noteworthy in a time when uh, there's such a a fiscal constraint placed on the country and resources are so scarce. But it really starts with trying to understand that uh, the more that you establish relationships in advance of an event, the more you create trust, uh, cooperation, networks, and partnerships, that in in fact uh, creates resiliency no matter 
what kind of events you may encounter. And I think one of the things we need to look at moving forward is how to take those uh, groups out there that have significant passion, commitment, and resources, no matter how great the resources are, and incorporate that into both planning, uh, response, and recovery. And I would go so far to say that we need to account for these in a much greater uh, way than we do now in the National Incident Management System and the Incident Command System, which are the uh, command and control systems that the uh, federal government, many state and local municipalities organize uh, for a response. Because I think we all need to understand that uh, all events in the future, because of access on the Internet, the ability of people to move around, are going to involve public participation, and the public's going to want to be involved. I believe, and I've had this conversation uh, clear up to the highest leaders in this country, that we need to come up with some way to kind of look at communities uh, and establish what the attributes are of a resilient community, identify those, and make those broadly known to everybody. I would go so far to say as if you could establish a set of criteria by which you could identify a prepared or resilient community, there ought to be some benefit attached to that. And one of the things you could potentially look at is the cost share associated with the grants that are provided by the federal government to state and local governments uh, subsequent to a disaster declaration. Right now, uh, there's a general cost share associated with that where uh, a grant from the federal government is 75% of the cost and 25% is borne by uh, local governments. Uh, I think if you have demonstrated that you are prepared, you have mitigated risk ahead of time, maybe we ought to look at that uh, cost share a, a little differently and uh, lower uh, the share that state and local governments would have to pay. Uh, that requires statutory change, but I think it's something we should look at, and it certainly, certainly uh, would be an incentive to state and local governments to get involved and start looking at the resiliency of their communities. In your opinion, how will creating a community of practice around this podcast series help? I think uh, the general goal of this podcast, and I, th- I think the general goal of continuing the uh, the RAND effort uh, resent re- around uh, resilient communities, is to uh, expand uh, the discussion, uh, the, the meaningfulness of this work uh, to local communities, and start to develop a cohort group or a uh, community of practice, if you will, around the issues that have to do with resiliency. And I think uh, one of the first things we need to do is have a frank, open conversation about uh, the value of local uh, non-governmental organizations, uh, community entities, and anybody that is organized to try and help the community in times of crisis can come into this debate and have a discussion, a very frank discussion, as I said before, about what are the barriers to entry, uh, how do we get these folks, uh, both culturally and organizationally, woven into uh, federal and state responses at higher levels, and how do we take advantage of the uh, resources, passion, and commitment of these folks, because they certainly uh, come with a lot of that, and we need to find a way to bring them into the, uh, into the uh, larger response. But to do that starts out, uh, you need to start out with a conversation about the value, the culture, and the organizational linkages that need to exist, and frankly, I think it all starts with building trust, and good conversations are the right way to start building trust. Admiral Allen, could you briefly give some comments on the new Promising Practices Network Toolkit? I had a, the very great honor not long ago to gather at the Lake of the Ozarks with some uh, educators from the state of Missouri, uh, some cohorts from RAND, folks from uh, the Homeland Security structure in the state of Missouri, and public safety officials. Uh, the goal of the conference was to talk about uh, the status of children when they're not at home when something happens and how to come up with a better way to deal with that. And there was no better group to talk to about this challenge and this problem than the educators from the state of Missouri. And most notably, we were joined by C.J. Huff, who was a superintendent of schools from Joplin, uh, who had done an extraordinary job 
in uh, creating uh, community resiliency in advance of that uh, terrible disaster by creating partnerships and networks. And in fact, I believe he led that uh, community and coming back faster. They started school on time uh, this fall after a devastating tornado on the 22nd of May. And just as a real, real uh, living example of how uh, the basic tenets of community resiliency, that's partnering and networking and trust, uh, can help you no matter what the problem is. And I think transcended the school district and he helped his uh, city a great deal. But moving beyond that, one of the uh, conversations that we had there uh, was the development of some emergency planning guidance uh, that organizations and individuals that have children outside the home when there is a problem uh, can use as a resource guide. The thing that I really liked about this uh, uh, practice and this uh, guidance that was prepared is that it draws on some of the classic risk management principles that you would see actually in industry and other types of functions around the world where the entire basis of the plan is based on assessing risk. Uh, we often have emergency numbers and we have supplies, but I don't think we often sit down and think about what are the things that could really happen where I live or where my child is at. And if those things did happen, what would be the most important things we would need to know about who to contact, uh, what types of supplies, what kind of plans will we need, uh, how, we should, how we should prepare ourselves, and the children themselves to be able to be uh, more resilient if, if these events were to occur. And at that day in the uh, Lake of the Ozarks, uh, we actually uh, rolled out uh, the overall structure of this planning guidance that starts with a risk assessment and starts with understanding uh, the things that would happen and the goals that you're trying to achieve when you do have an emergency and you have children that are not at home. I believe that it was a very constructive conversation, and I think one of the goals of this podcast and one of the goals of this continuing conversation should be how can we expand the understanding of risk-based emergency planning and put tools in the hands of folks that have to make very tough decisions that are not professional responders but have significant responsibilities in their community. And the better we prepare them to do that and the better they are prepared, then again, as I've stated earlier, that will be one more contribution to community resiliency. And as we saw in Joplin, uh, it doesn't matter what what event occurs. If you have those relationships and you've thought about them in advance, you're going to be much better off uh, than if you had not done it. Thank you for listening to the Resilient Communities podcast series. This series is a product of the Rand Gulf States Policy Institute and is made possible with support from the Charles M. and Mary D. Grant Foundation. For more information about RAND's work on community resilience, please visit rand.org slash topics slash community resilience. Resilient Communities also produces an online newsletter for sharing ideas, research, and strategies to build resilience. For more information, please email communityresilience at rand.org.